Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Always a blessing to be together in the presence of the Lord with each other, worshipping Him. Just see if I can bring this up a little bit. There we go. Right, so we're continuing our walk through Exodus chapters 32 to 34. And we're in the second half of Exodus 32 today. And the question before us is, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? That's a phrase from this passage, Exodus 32, 15 to 35. In in context, and we always want to know what the context is of any passage of Scripture that we're looking at in the context, starting back in Exodus 19 and 20, God announced his covenant with Israel as as they are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert, and God comes to the mountain and he speaks from the mountain literally speaks audibly to the whole people and they hear the words of the Ten Commandments and the covenant God makes with them. And then what happens after that? There's some further instructions. And then there's particular instructions for building the tabernacle, the, the, the place of worship, the tent that they're going to use as they travel through the desert. And uh, that's going to be specially built and the priests are going to have special clothes. And all of this is is given in some detail. But the, the, the message there is God saying to them, I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. This is how you're going to live for me. And this is how I'm going to be present in your midst. I'm going to I'm going to be there in the tabernacle specially. And this is how you can approach me. And so that's the context. And yet, with all of that promise that he's going to be their God, the God who made everything is going to be their God. He's going, they're going to be his people. He's going to provide for them as he has already rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And they're going to, and they, they say, yes, yes, yes. We're going, and, and they agree to the terms of the covenant God makes with them. And then comes chapter 32. Moses has gone up the mountain talking with God for 40 days and immediately they abandon, they abandon their promises, make an idol and start worshiping the idol and say, this is your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we looked at that last week, the first half of this chapter, where the question was, was, you know, who is your God? So that, that's, and we saw in the last this message also, Moses' first intercession for Israel. God had said, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to make you uh, into a great nation. He's going to be effectively another Abraham, the start of a whole new nation. And Moses says, oh, basically, please don't do that, God. What will people think? And God says, oh, okay. And uh, that's what happens. And uh, And so they're not going to be completely wiped out. So today's passage is really about choosing sides. Who is on the Lord's side? You know, we often in life, we find ourselves 
called to choose sides of something, right? People in the comic world or the movie world, maybe you're a Marvel fan or a DC Comics fan, you know, maybe it's Spider-Man or Iron Man, maybe it's Superman or Batman. In music, maybe, you know, you're EDM or hip hop and you don't want to be, you don't want to be both of them. You have to be one or the other. Or maybe it's Rams and Chargers. Who's, who do you belong to? You know, although I don't know if anybody really cares about that, but. Uh, maybe in the burger world, you know, uh, it's in and out versus, well, everyone else. Or, you know, are you with the Trojans in USC or UCLA and Bruins? These are kind of trivial. Wait, wait, dude, you say, that last one, that's life or death. But so some, are tri- some of these decisions are trivial, they don't matter ultimately don't matter what but some sides where we we tend to take are are simply unhelpful or unnecessary to have to choose sides like do you like hymns or choruses Uh, what what kind of worship those kind of worship wars are unhelpful and certainly unnecessary and some choosing of sides is absolutely essential and here This is one that Israel and Aaron and Moses face the most essential and momentous decision of all. Who is on the Lord's side? Reminds me of Joshua 24, where Joshua says to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve, whether it's the gods, you know, of the peoples around or whether it's the God, it's the Lord. And in our passage, Moses is kind of the, the chief protagonist. And he, he's the one who represents in this passage what it means to be on the Lord's side as he, as he goes through this passage. So let's pick up our reading now. In, in, we'll start with verses 15 and 16. And Moses turned and went down the mountain, uh, from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, They were written, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So tablets, these two uh, are stone tablets, and on each one is the Ten Commandments written on front and back. That was quite common in ancient inscriptions and, and tablets and things that I found to write on both sides. And it says two tablets here, probably not the first five or the first four and then the next of the rest of the Ten Commandments. Probably this is two copies of the same thing. You know, uh, the, the, uh, the covenant God makes with Israel has a lot of similarities to the other covenants and treaties that we see in the ancient Near East world. For example, some of the Hittite treaties when they conquered a nation. Uh, in the Hittite Empire, conquered another nation, they would make a covenant with them, and it would follow a similar pattern to the covenant God makes with Israel in a number of ways. But one of the ways is that they would there would be two copies: to be one for the the king who uh, the Hittite king who had conquered this nation and was going to make a covenant with them, and there'd be one copy for them. And so these probably represent, you know, God's copy and and Israel's copy, and they're going to be kept in the tabernacle. So, 
And, and remarkably, these are written with the very hand of God himself. Uh, but see, if we're going to be on the Lord's side, look at what Moses does first. He goes down from the mountain. What is he carrying? He's carrying the covenant of God, the words of God, literal words of God, written with God's own hand. We need to recognize that God has made and written his covenant, that God has spoken. That's, in a sense, the starting point for being on his side. To being for God is, to, is, not, is not simply to recognize that he exists or that you're generally in favor of God somehow. To be for God is to be for what he has said to be for what he has written, to recognize that we have received from him his word, his ways, and they're written down, and there is no ambiguity. To be on the Lord's side means to receive, to treasure, to read, and to obey the word of the Lord. You see, we have a relationship with God. We, we like to talk about our relationship with Jesus, and it's, a, it's an incredible relationship that we're privileged to have with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship of love and trust. It is a friendship relationship, but listen, it's not an equal relationship. You, can, you're gonna, you should be a friend with God, but it's not an equal relationship of equal buddies. Right? How that relationship is always a relationship of superior to inferior. We, he's always in charge and we're not. He, and so to be on his side is not simply to like the idea of being a friend of God or to, or generally to be in favor of God, but to recognize the terms of the relationship that he has instituted and to receive it, to treasure it, to obey it and live it out. That God has spoken. There was a guy that we used to, uh, that we met when we were doing uh, coffee bar evangelism and his name was Jimmy. He was a, a Scotsman usually and he was often drunk, but he would come into our coffee house and he would, uh, and he would, uh, you know, listen and he would, drink coffee and eat our food and so on and when you talk to him about the lord he would say oh jesus is my friend jesus is my best friend and it was lovely to hear him say that but this same uh jimmy when he got upset with us one day uh went out of our coffee house went down to a to a trash heap that he found and picked up an old toilet and brought it back and threw it through the plate glass window of our coffee house um he got angry. Uh, and so G- Jimmy wanted a friend in Jesus. He didn't, but he, what he didn't want really is to do what Jesus said and to obey him. And so to be on the Lord's side means to receive what is written, to be in God's, in relationship with God on God's own terms. And as Moses does, to treasure it, to carry it, and to carry that same word to others. Next, verses 17 to 20. Now, as Moses and his assistant Joshua are coming down the Mount Sinai, 
and they're coming uh, down to the people who are committing idolatry below. They've made a golden calf and worshipping this golden calf. And when Joshua, verse 17 to 20, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he, that's Moses, said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger was burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. So look, this is a horrible irony. The last time we saw Israel singing and dancing in Exodus was in Exodus chapter 15, right after they had come through the Red Sea by the miraculous hand of God and the Egyptian army that was chasing them had been overwhelmed by the waters just after Israel walked on through the sea on dry land as God opened the way. And then they stopped and they danced and they celebrated and they sang. And that's the last time thanking God for their deliverance, that he brought them out of Egypt, that he had delivered them, that he had set them free. And they did this wonderful community dance and song. That's the last time. Now... They are dancing before a golden calf that they have made or that Aaron has made and they're saying, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is a horrible irony. It's sin's celebration, we might call it. You know, it's interesting in the way that our culture has moved in its idolatry to certain kinds of sin from tolerating to, or from perhaps disapproval, to toleration, to affirming, and then ultimately to celebrating. And now in our culture, if there's certain things that if you're not not just tolerating, but you're not actually celebrating, then you are on the wrong side of the culture. And, uh, you know, the next step after being disapproved of for not celebrating is to be punished for not affirming or celebrating sin. Like the Roman emperors in the early third century AD who insisted on being worshipped as God and confessed as Lord and there was punishment for not following along. That's where sin's celebration eventually goes. Here as Moses sees them dancing and singing and uh, and he, he sees what the Lord had already seen. And we saw last week that the Lord had seen this from the, and he told Moses, this is what's happening. And the Lord was angry about it. Now Moses gets to see what the Lord had already seen. And he got angry. You know, to be on the Lord's side means to share in his compassion and in his anger. And so Moses breaks the tablets Just in a moment of anger, he throws them down. And, of course, the tablets represent a covenant that God has 
made with Israel and the breaking of them in a sense has symbolized what's happened to that from Israel's perspective they have smashed that covenant that God had made with them and and so then Moses takes this idol this golden bull or calf and he burns it with fire and grinds it to powder and he scatters it on the on the probably on the uh, the stream there which and they have to drink it whenever they drink they need to, they're going to be drinking their own golden calf which came from their own earrings that they'd given to Aaron to make the idol with you know one of my favorite figures uh of church history is CT Studd and CT Studd was an English missionary one of the so-called Cambridge 7 uh and uh, who was a uh, back in the 19th century in Cambridge, of course, which in those days, along with Oxford, was the center of uh, education for England, and, and the elite uh, young men and women would go there, especially men, and they would, uh, and they were wealthy and elite, and they would get, they would be the, you know, whoever graduated from there had a, a big step up in life. And C.T. Studd was a wealthy, intelligent young man at Cambridge, and uh, he heard uh, he got converted to Jesus and he also heard the message from an American evangelist who came through by the name of D.L. Moody and D.L. Moody was challenging the students at Cambridge to world missions and so Studd and six others uh, decided to that they were going to go out and work with Hudson Taylor in China inland mission and work in evangelizing China so uh, this was radical, not just because he was a wealthy young man in the middle of his education at Cambridge, but because he was probably the best athlete in the country at that time. He was on the English cricket team, uh, and uh, as a cricketer, he was just nationally famous. Everybody came to watch him. He was probably the best athlete of his country in that day, and a celebrity of, of, of a major kind. And he, but he gave it all up. In fact, he gave up his money. He gave, he gave away all his whole inheritance. And he went out to China to work with, his, with uh, Hudson Taylor. And when he got to China, he wrote his younger brothers back. And he says this about his sport. He said, I don't say don't play games or cricket or so forth. By all means, play and enjoy them, giving thanks to Jesus for them. Only take care that games... Don't become an idol. An idol to you as they did to me. What good will it do anybody in the next world to have been the best player that has ever played? And then think of the difference between that and winning people to Jesus. That's C.T. Studd laying down his idol that had become to him this sport his celebrity status, his money, and going out. And and so that's what basically Moses does. He destroys this idol, and he makes them drink it. Now, what's the point of the drinking this idol in dust? 
It's a defiling thing. You see a few other places in the Old Testament where they destroy idols is they smash it to pieces and they sometimes throw it on the to- in the cemetery uh, because it's, it, it, it's kind of defiling by being in contact with the dead bodies or the, or, the, or the cemetery at least. Here, if it goes in the drinking water and you drink it, where does it end up? You see my point. Without being graphic about it, that's what's happening their idol is now, you know, where, where, where it's going to go after it leaves your body. And, uh, and so this is a way of defiling the idol and destroying it. Idolatry must be rejected if you're going to be on God's side. If you're going to be on the Lord's side, you've got to reject idolatry. And that means, of course, being aware in your own life, in my life, in your life, what are the idols that we've had? What are the things that we've overvalued and that we're serving and giving sacrifice to that really don't, shouldn't have the place that they have in our lives? And it's not, as C.T. Studd said, it's not that you have to, have to stop doing everything except telling people about Jesus. You can play sport and give thanks for it. You can play music and give thanks to Jesus for it. But if it becomes an idol, that's a whole different matter. And uh, And so idols... Uh, have to be abandoned and rejected. So reject idolatry, verses 17 to 20. Now we move on. Verses 20 to 24, the next part of our passage, and this is where Moses confronts Aaron, who has actually made this idol, his brother Aaron. And And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know this people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. What do you think of that? I mean, that. The lamest of lame excuses, right? Amazing how lame our excuses can get. You know, some people are late for work. I looked up this one, so uh, it's online, so I know it's true. Uh, but there's, a, you know, what are some of the lamest excuses give, people have given uh, for your for, for being late to work? One is, you know, I got betrayed by the new alarm app on my phone. Uh, I'm allergic to the morning. Uh, my kid flushed my car keys. Uh, through a cosmic rift, I was pulled into another world. And, uh, and here's the best one. I was kidnapped this morning by some activists for two hours. That's why I'm late for work. So people come up with all kinds of lame excuses. What about for breaking up? You know, girlfriend or boyfriend? These are some of the best lame excuses. Uh, I like you too much and this scares me. That's why I'm breaking up with you. Uh, I love you and I won't be able to bear it if I lose you. Before that happens, let's break, let's break up. You know, not quite sure, but that one doesn't really work, does it? Oh, you deserve better. That's always a good lame excuse for breaking up. You deserve better. And of course, there's the old traditional, it's not you, it's me. So, lame excuses. Aaron comes up with some good ones here. But Moses confronts him. 
He said to Aaron in verse 21, Why did, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? He's asking Aaron, are you getting back at them for something that you've brought them into idolatry? Have they done something to you? And uh, he's basically saying, Aaron, you have brought this great sin upon them. And it was true. And Aaron never really answers this, except he blames the people in verse 22 and 23. Don't be angry, Moses, he says. You know this people. They are set on evil. It's, it's them. It's, in other words, it's not me. It's them. Uh, for they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. For this, for this Moses, well, we don't know what's happened to him. He brought us up out of Egypt. So Aaron is saying, Aaron is being confronted for leading Israel into great sin. And his response to Moses is, oh, don't get angry. It's all these people. It's their fault. And so he tells this story. And in verse 24, he says, well, I threw it into the fire, this gold, and out came this calf. Literally what it says, I checked it in the Hebrew. It really does say that. And he's blaming the fire. I threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. This just, this, this calf came out. That is lame. Listen, if we're going to stand on the Lord's side, we need to stand for truth. We need to be willing to accept and admit responsibility. You see, that's why confession and repentance are such important aspects of Christian conversion. Not just believing that certain things are true. It's turning away from the old life. It's embracing, if you like, your responsibility and admitting your fault and and repenting and turning away from it, confessing. Uh, There was a young man that I I was uh, talking to once who had was, he was, he'd come to Christ, but he, he, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit because when he was 15 years old, he and his, uh, one of his mates, uh, were used to work, uh, part time in a cafe, uh, and they didn't like the owner. They were really uh, upset with the owner of the cafe. So the one night they went literally and burned it down. They got in there and they burned down the cafe of, of their employer. Anyway, that's it. It was, it stayed on his conscience all, for a number of years when I met him. And he said, what do I do? You know, cause it's now on my conscience. I, I know I, I, it's been standing there. That thing is there. And, you know, and I said to him, look, you've got to be willing to accept the responsibility. You can't, pl- you can't play the blame game like Aaron is doing in this passage. Blame anything else. Blame the Israelites. Blame the fire. You can't do that. You've got to be willing to admit it, to own up to it, and take responsibility if you're going to stand with the Lord and not against him. You've got to stand with him on the side of truth. And so, you know, it could be costly to him, very costly. It could be get the police involved. This could All sorts of things could happen here. So anyway, he called his father and uh, his father called a lawyer and uh, this young man went to the police uh, and uh, told them what had happened and uh, he put himself in some he didn't you know he didn't confess the name of his friend he he did say there was a friend but he didn't he was confessing his own sin not his friend's sin but he confessed it and 
he put himself, you know, in, in danger of going to prison or something, but or getting punished. As it was, it was worked out uh, through the police and so on. But uh, it was a lesson to him, and it was a lesson to me that someone was was strong enough before in the Lord found strength. The best way to put it, I'm going to take responsibility for my actions. I'm not going to put the blame on everybody else, and I'm not going to avoid my responsibility. Stand for the truth to stand with the Lord. Now we move to verse 25 to 29. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood on the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said today, said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That's a very sobering passage. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, this is what he did. He cried out, who is on the Lord's side? Might have been easy to get enthusiastic for the Levites here. I don't know. I don't think it was easy whenever the whole nation is committing idolatry. And there, but who's on the Lord's side? Perhaps didn't quite realize what would they have to do to be, to, to be on the Lord's side to execute God's judgment on Israel. But Moses saw what God had seen, and seeing is important in this whole passage. And if you just if you if you're kind of underlining your Bible or anything like that, you just might want to. Just note where, or highlighting, might be where, where, where people see things and they act upon it in this passage. Verse, chapter verse one of people saw that Moses delayed and that's when they, they looked for other gods. Verse five, when Aaron saw that they were idolizing this bull that he had made, he announced a feast to Yahweh to try to do some kind of religious compromise. Uh, in verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and it's, they're, they're stiff necked, you know, they're, they're stubborn in their disobedience. And then we saw already in our passage, when Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and he got angry. And now in our passage, when he saw that the people were getting out of control, and he wanted to take action. Aaron had let them break loose, but Moses saw. I think there's interesting contrast there. Moses saw what was really happening. Aaron had just abandoned them if his responsibility as a priest and leader, and he had abandoned this and just let them happen. If he saw it, it didn't concern him as much as it concerned Moses. What are we seeing? What are we seeing? Do we see the idolatry, the sin, the self-indulgement of the world around us, the culture we inhabit, the world we live in? Do we see it? Do we see how our own cultures and our own societies are covered in shame? 
because they have broken loose from all moral restraint and have gone their own way and abandoned the ways of God. Do we see that like Moses saw and think something has to be done? Or do we see it in the way that Aaron saw and just let them go and he didn't really notice to the degree that he needed to notice? What do we see? Verse 26 to 28, and Moses stands in the camp, in the gate of the camp, and who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And interestingly, uh, they, who, the ones who come to him are the sons of Levi. That's the Levitic, the Levites. That's the tribe of Levi to which Moses and Aaron belong. It's their own tribe that gathers to Moses. Uh, and, and this is, that wasn't necessarily predicted. It just happened that way. And those Levites respond when Moses calls, who's on the Lord's side? When the whole nation is committing wild idolatry, they respond, we're going to be on the Lord's side. Now, they should have done a bit earlier, right? But when they were challenged, they made a decision. They made a decision. You know, I wish I'd come to Christ a whole lot earlier than I did. It took me a while. But thankfully, praise the Lord, I did. And, and you know, who's the one who's on the Lord's side, who are they? They're the ones who respond when the Lord calls. They're the ones who respond when the Lord calls, even when everyone else is going the other way. That's what it means to be on the Lord's side. It means to say yes to Jesus when your culture and everything around you is saying no. You're saying go that way and Jesus is saying go the other way. That's the one who's on the Lord's side. Those who listen and obey the, the difficult commands of God. This is a very difficult command. Now, remember, if you had, if you have read through Exodus, uh, you might have noticed in Exodus 22 and verse 20 that idolatry was subject to the death penalty. So, in Exodus 22:20, he who sacrifices to any god other than to Yahweh the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. So, that's already the covenant. That's the, the commandment to which in chapter 24 and chapter 20, they had agreed. They had said, yes, we're going to live this way. We're going to live this way. We're going to follow these commandments. And now the whole nation is committing idolatry. In fact, God was within his rights to wipe out the whole nation. It was his mercy at the end of, chap- of verse 15, verse 15 of this chapter that he had decided, I'm not going to wipe out the whole nation. But it doesn't mean there weren't going to be consequences for sin. And so they strap on their swords and they go killing people. I don't think it was random slaughter. I think they're challenging people who are committing idolatry. But in any event, the people who died were those who were deliberately disobeyed the commandments of God that they knew, that they'd heard, that they, and the commandments that had been given to them, uh, especially the first two of the, of the Ten Commandments where they'd heard God speak from heaven. No other gods before me, don't make idols and don't worship them. Those had been heard by everybody from heaven. And here they are going the other way. 
And so that's a very sobering thing as they do this. The one on the Lord's side then is the one who responds when God calls. When Jesus says go, when everyone else is saying no. When Jesus says come, when everybody else is saying go. This is the one on the Lord's side. Those who listen to and obey the difficult commands of God. Even at cost to themselves. Verse 29, and Moses said today, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this this, this day. Uh, God loves volunteers. God loves volunteers. It's the trans, This is where the English Standard Version, which we read today, uh, says you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Uh, other tr- versions translate this differently. The New American trans- translate this as an imperative, a command. Dedicate yourselves today for the Lord. Uh, the New Revised Standard, today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, it says, uh, fill your hands this day to the Lord. Literally what it says in the Hebrew, fill your hands. I think the idea is, uh, that, uh, that when this idiom is used of filling your hands to the Lord in other parts of the scripture, it's got to do with taking something as an offering to God. You pick up in your hands something you're going to give as an offering to God. And in this case, uh, literally filled their hand with their sword. But the, their, their, their obedience, if you like, to come to Moses, to stand on the Lord's side and to do what he says is an offering of service to God. And God is going to bless them for it. Now, that blessing is as yet to be named. We're not quite sure in, this, in the passage and in the book of Exodus yet what that blessing is going to be, their dedication to God's service. What is the blessing? It turns out it's an incredible blessing because in Exodus 38, there's a mention there of the Levites are going to have responsibilities to do with the tabernacle, to serve God in in his worship place where he's going to be met in person. And in Numbers, uh, again in chapter 1 and chapter 3, the Levites are going to serve the Lord through guarding and assisting in the worship centered on the tabernacle. And in Numbers chapter 3, God chooses for himself the Levites in place of the firstborn of Israel. They are his special tribe. In Numbers 8, Israel, the nation, is told to lay hands on all the, all the Levites. The whole thousands of them lay hands on thousands of Levites and commission them, if you like, for their service and ministry. To the Lord at the tabernacle. In Numbers 18, the Levites receive, are told that they are going to be the ones receiving Israel's tithes, uh, and uh, which was the tax that, that God put on Israel uh, to you know, to support uh, their their, uh, if you like their their religious uh, support the Levites and the temple and oh sorry the tabernacle and so on. We're also told, however, that in Numbers 18, 24, that the Levites get no landed territory in Israel. They're not going to have their own territorial boundary like all the other tribes have. They're going to be scattered among Israel. And uh, they got no particular inheritance, just a few cities and things. Because in verse 33 of Joshua 13, the Lord God of Israel is their 
inheritance. The priesthood of the Lord is the heritage also in Joshua 18. Wow. They effectively said, we're going to stand with the Lord. God said, I'm going to bless you. Turns out, what a blessing. They get to be a priestly tribe. They get to, uh, what they don't get is lots of land. They don't get wealth and riches. They do, however, have the Lord and his presence as their inheritance, the service of the, of the Lord as their privilege, the nearness to God as, as their way of life. And, and so this is their blessing from the Lord. Stand on the Lord's side. Who is on the Lord's side? I talked about C.T. Studd and how he had been called to missions through, at least in part through the ministry of American evangelist D.L. Moody. This is in the 19th century who went over to England and, and gave a, did a wonder, powerful student mission there uh, at uh, Cambridge University. And, and uh, the seven young men who went out to work with Hudson Taylor uh, in China. C.T. Studd was there for 21 years in China, came back to England for health reasons, and then went out to Africa, uh, even though his health reasons hadn't gone away. And for another 18 years, he served the Lord in the Congo and saw an incredible revival. But what about Moody? What happened to him? You know, Moody, and this is a remarkable story, Dale Moody, but he met a man, an English man actually, called Henry Varley. And, and Varley said to Moody, Varley, Varley is a Christian, but Varley had said to Moody, Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And, you know, Moody decided he was going to be that man if he could and incredible things and through him of course Cambridge 7 and many other things happened through D.L. Moody because he heard the call who is on the Lord's side who is on the Lord's side and he responded and he heard that call listen lastly verse 30 to 35 the next day Moses said to the people, you sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has great sin, a great sin they've made for themselves, gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. If you're going to stand on the Lord's side, if you're going to stand with the Lord, if you're going to be on the Lord's side, listen, you need to pursue like Moses did. You need to pursue mercy. You need to pursue mercy. That's what he did. He interceded. Not only did, of course, he express God's judgment in the previous section we read, but here he's seeking God's mercy for Israel, not excusing their sin, not saying God they wasn't all that bad really, but seeking pardon 
We already know back from verse 15 of chapter 32, we read this last week, that God, he already knows that God is disposed to mercy. He's already asked God not to wipe out the entire people. Yes, there's a plague. Yes, there's 3,000 die by the sword. But it's not hundreds of thousands. It's not the whole nation. And Moses is prepared to die with or for the people. It's rather remarkable. It's not quite clear whether he just expects to be uh, if he's, if, if God's going to wipe them all out, let Moses die with them. But, or perhaps, and some scholars think this is what he's really saying, saying, Lord, take me instead. You know, kill me and not them. That's a possibility. And if, if that's the case, then it's quite like Jesus, isn't it? Who lays down his life for the sins of the whole world. And, but for whatever reason, Moses' reasoning here, his offer is not accepted. God says, whoever has sinned, him I will blot out of my book. What, what book is that? Well, in Psalm 69, verse 28, it talks about uh, wicked people who, is, and, and it, it actually prays that they be blotted out of the book of life and not recorded with the righteous. It appears that God has a book uh, which you're in until you're blotted out. <laughs> and uh, and so that, that's interesting. Um, um, so the same in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So uh, rather interesting, but the point is when you're blotted out from God's book, you're dead, man. I mean, that's that's the end of things for you. But... Uh, that's a bad ending for you. But Moses saying, blot me out, perhaps either with them or for them, probably. God doesn't accept this offer of Moses, but guess what? He still sends them to the promised land. He still gives them the promised land. He's, he's going to say, yes, people who sin still have to face me, but as a people, I'm going to send them to the promised land. They're still going to get what I promised. And he said, my angel shall go before you. That was what he'd already promised back in Exodus 23. I'm going to send you an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I prepared. But Moses is on the Lord's side here. Why? Because on the Lord's side is mercy and grace and forgiveness. Even though there's still consequences for sin, he's still going to give Israel the land. He's going to send an angel before them on the Lord's side to be on the low, on the side of mercy and grace. To pursue mercy is to become an intercessor and a witness, an intercessor for mercy on our land and on our people we know and on the nations of the world and a witness to the, to the people who are out there and the nations of the world as an intercessor and a witness. For them, then you are actually standing on the Lord's side. You are pursuing mercy for the people and the nations. But in verse 34 and 35, we get this. Nevertheless, in a day when I visit, I'll visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. You know, in our pursuit of mercy, recognize that the Lord remains judge. Nevertheless, the Lord still remains judge. God in his mercy does not abandon judgment. Sin has consequences, 
So we are also standing with the Lord when we recognize and respect him as judge as well as forgiver. When we recognize and respect him as judge as well as forgiver. Conclusion. Who is on the Lord's side? Let me list them. Who is on the Lord's side? The one who receives and obeys God's covenant, God's word. The one who resists and rejects the idolatry all around. The one who accepts and recognizes responsibility before God. The one who responds and obeys to the, responds to and obeys the Lord's call even when it's a difficult choice. The one who seeks God's mercy even for the undeserving. And the one who stands with the Lord, not against him in his judgments. That's the one who's on the Lord's side. I want to say to you today, whose side are you on? This is a, this is a decision that's not trivial. It's life-changing and it's eternal. Are you on the Lord's side? Have you never turn to his side or perhaps you have never you have never even surrendered to Jesus as your Lord Savior or perhaps you're, you've said you're on his side but you've compromised and you need to take a stand again and say I'm on the Lord's side no matter the cost he's calling me Thank you, Lord.